passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to episode 5 of Cruel Summer, our look back at each and every G1 Climax Tournament Finals from 1991 to 2018. And on today's episode, we're going to look at 1995, and the match we're going to look at is Keiji Muto versus Shinya Hashimoto. And uh, I'm very excited about today's co-host. He is the host of the British Wrestling Experience, which you can listen to at postwrestling.com. Coincidentally, this is also where you're listening to this particular podcast as well. He's the man I like to refer to as the brigadier of British wrestling podcasting. He is Mr. Martin Bushby. Martin, how are you, sir? I'm fantastic, WH. Thanks for that uh, incredible introduction. And uh, I'm so hyped to talk about this match with you because I've been listening to uh, you talk about Japanese wrestling with a variety of people for a number of years. So uh, thanks so much for bringing me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, not at all. I'm a big fan of uh, BWE with, uh, you know, I started listening about a year ago. It, you know, Ollie was still on the show. It's you and Benno. Um, big fan. And I, I should tell you, I guess, the origin of the, the nickname I, I have for you, which is the Brigadier. It's like when I first started listening to British Wrestling Experience, I always, when I heard your voice, I didn't know what you looked like. So I envisioned that you look like, you know, one of these uh, World War II gen- Brigadier General characters that would send, like, troops on special on special mission to, like, sabotage the Nazis in, like, their hidden <laughs> fortresses or something like, you know, the Guns of Navarone or, or Eagles There, movies like that. But then I saw what you look like, and I'm like, oh, that's not my image. That's not what Martin looks like at all. Oh, if only I did look that impressive. Uh, you had this image of Richard Burton or something like that, but in in, in fact, I look more like Moby. I'm, I'm I apologize for that, WH. That I I'm not, and I'm not this impressive figure. <laughs> no, no, you look more like uh, my image was more like the uh, the brigadier of like in classic Doctor Who, from oh, yeah. uh, uh, what was the name of the the group he was ahead of? Uh, like, it's just escaping me. Or Mike Myers' character in uh, Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> But you look nothing like that, so it's okay. I've kind of erased <laughs> that image from my mind. Not that I know what you actually look like. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you here, Martin. You, you are obviously well versed in the 
world of British wrestling and European wrestling. You talk about it every week with Benno and Jamesy now, uh, who's your mm-hmm. new co-host on the British Wrestling Experience. But I kind of want to get background on you as a fan in general. When did you start watching uh, wrestling? Well, um, I, I imagine a lot of people have told uh, similar stories, especially when you're uh, 30-something in the UK. I mean, I got into wrestling. I remember my, my grandparents had World of Sport on when I was a really little child, but I didn't really pay attention to it. But um, I really got into wrestling when uh, WWE invaded our shows in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. I think my first full event that I watched was SummerSlam 91. Me and all my friends gathered around uh, one of my friend's houses and watched the full show. Yeah, and I was mesmerized from them. Uh, a friend of my mum's would tape all the shows for us. Uh, Sheffield Arena had just newly opened, so it was one of the venues WWE ran um, every year. And my poor dad had to take us to every tour. Yeah, and I was just hooked from then, really. Uh, that's amazing. And do you, you also have, I guess, an interest in Japanese wrestling to some degree, yes? Yeah, well, that also started really early on for me. Um, WCW tapes were widely available in a lot of shops in uh, in the UK. So I think one of the first ones I purchased uh, or either got for Christmas or a birthday was Starcade 92. And that was my introduction to the great Mooter. And I mean, the matches, watching back now, the matches aren't that great, but... I was absolutely mesmerized by this guy. I mean, how quick he was in the ring, the moonsault and spring elbow was some of like the flashiest moves I'd ever seen. And uh, subsequent to that, I started buying Superstars of Wrestling magazine that would go on to become Power Slam magazine. They had uh, loads of little bits about New Japan, Old Japan women, stuff like that. And uh, and uh, I think they, I think it was they had an advert in the back of a back of one of the magazines and they had a tape trader who was called Rob Butcher. Uh, a lot of UK uh, listeners all, all know that name. And um, he also wrote for the magazine. So I sent off for a list and uh, it came back and it was filled with New Japan stuff with all the Dave Meltzer ratings next to each match and show. So um, I think my timeline might be a bit off. I think this was my 93, 94. So I sent off for the first G1 Climax, some FMW stuff. Uh, I think subsequently after that, the first Super J Cup. And yeah, there's really really got into japanese wrestling from sort of like the ages of sort of like 11 and 12 just all thanks to these wcw tapes i'd bought it's funny you know you mentioned power slime magazine and i have to say that that i was buying power slime magazine in toronto like i'd have to go to specialty magazine shops and i mm. saw i forget which cover it was i think stone cold steve austin was in the cover so it's like 1997 or so and i would yeah start reading Power Slam magazine before I started subscribing to the Wrestling Observer. <laughs> so a lot of my information about like getting really, really deep into um, Japanese wrestling came from like the, the writing of like people like Finn Martin and, and other writers at Power Slam magazine. So there's, it's thanks to like UK wrestling fans that I'm like as well versed, I suppose, like I, I think I'm well versed in Japanese wrestling because of the work of, you know, of the writers of Power Slam magazine, which is which is kind of funny, I think. Uh, then later on, I would you know get uh, a subscription to the Wrestling Observer and learn more about that through the writing of, of Dave Meltzer. Um, did you watch a lot of the like the the kind of like the Japanese promotions when they would visit the UK back in the early two thousands? Like say Pro Wrestling Noah, I think would go over there often, and I think maybe even did Dragon Gate go over there as well. Yeah, Dragon Gate used to come over here quite regularly, but that was when I was in a slump. I slumped during wrestling. I've had a few slumps in my life. Only like lasted a, a year or so, and I, I carried on buying Power Slam to keep up with everything, but I'd stopped watching things completely. I did, however, go to the uh, International Showdown show. I think that was in 2005, which is uh, the wrestling channel. That's the show they put on, and that had uh, 
Misawa and uh, a bunch of guys like that on. So yeah, I got to see uh, Misawa live at least once. Oh, that's that's a good thing. I th- I saw. I think my only experience of seeing Mitsuharu Misawa live was in 2000 in Osaka, which is when I first lived in Japan before mm. I came back to Toronto and then subsequently have returned since then. Uh, it was him. Oh, who was it? Uh, it was him and I think Takeshi Rikio against uh, Shinya Hashimoto and Alexander wow. Otsuka. So it's like, I didn't understand the depth of the interpromotional because like you have Misawa and one of his guys from Noah against you know the, the New Japan legend, the guy we're going to talk about today. Uh, and Shinya Hashimoto, who was then the, the big star of Zero One, which is a promotion that just started up. And Alexander Otsuka, who was part of Zero One, but he made his name in the infamous Battle Arts promotion. So later on, I'm like, wow, I saw a really legendary and historic match that day, but I did not realize it because I was more focused yeah. on, <laughs> on Masawa versus Hashimoto, who I was very familiar with by, by that time. But uh, today, we're going to talk about the 1995 G1 Climax Final, which features uh, two wrestlers we had already mentioned right now, uh, Keiji Mudo and Shinya Hashimoto. And I'm going to give some background about the particular tournament. The uh, 1995 G1 Climax was uh, another eight-man round robin tournament. Uh, before, you would have like these league tournaments where people would fight in different blocks, A, B blocks, and and they'd all have matches with each other, and the top point getters would move on to the finals. Uh, but they would also, you know, uh, play around with this uh, round robin tournament uh, aspect. Uh, each uh, show was held in uh, Ryogoku Kokugikan, which is a, a far cry from what they do now, which is have like a month long tournament. Uh, mm. This particular tournament was held between August 11th to August 15th, uh, with the and the, there was a kind of a twist in this tournament that the two top scorers from each block would advance to a four-man mini-tournament to decide the winner. Uh, let's talk about the uh, A block. Uh, oh, it is actually not a... It's a round-robin, sorry. It's, it wasn't a, a, a single elimination tournament. What I wanted to say was like sometimes they would tease having these like single elimination tournaments, but this was back to the round-robin format. Uh, in A block, we have uh, Keiji Mudo, Masahiro Chono, uh, Rick Flair, his first and only appearance in the G1 Climax, mm. and uh, Shiro Koshinaka. In B Block, we had Shinya Hashimoto, Scott Norton, Hiroshi Tan- uh, Hiroyoshi Tenzan, and Kensuke Sasaki. And uh, the semifinals would end up being uh, Muto versus Norton. Obviously, Muto uh, would go over Norton, and uh, Chono versus Hashimoto, and uh, Hashimoto would pin Chono in that match. I. I- in our uh, discussion before we recorded, you wanted to talk a bit about uh, Ric Flair' uh, participation in the G1 Climax, Martin. Yeah, because obviously he was known for all these incredible matches. Obviously, it started waning a bit around uh, 95. But and, and WCW and uh, New Japan had this relationship for years, didn't they? And he was known as sort of like the marathon man of matches. So it's interesting that this was the only one that he ever wanted to participate in or the, the only one that they invited him to. Because obviously... He had that good match with uh, with Muto as well uh, earlier on in the tournament. And it, I just found it interesting that uh, Flair, obviously a big name. I don't know how big of a name he is in Japan, but, you know, it, it's interesting that this was the only one that he was uh, invited to appear at. I mean, he is he's a legendary figure in Japan. Like, up, he's up there with, like, guys like Harley Race and, you know, Stan Hansen. Obviously, he didn't tour as often in the later years, uh, like, you know, like Hansen would, but... He, he did quite a few tours of like All Japan back when the NWA had their relationship with Giant Baba. And then obviously the WCW connection with New Japan you know, facilitated that he would 
only work for New Japan if he came to Japan. Uh, I think more it's more along the lines of he he just didn't have the chance to come to Japan to do yeah. like, even for like at this time the the G one's only like a four day tournament, uh, and also it's kind of a grueling. Even those four days, he's just having he's going to be having top like matches with top guys in the company, and we're we're gonna I guess we kind of refer back to his match with Muto when we talk about um, the the finals here, which is Muto versus. Hashimoto. So, you know, we, we, we start this match and right off the bat, Martin, like the crowd is super hot. Yes. For, <laughs> and, and I got, it has to be because like we have the two of the three biggest stars in New Japan, uh, you know, facing off against each other with Hashimoto and Muto, who, you know, are two thirds of the infamous Three Musketeers, which also included Masahiro Chono. Um, this is Hashimoto's first time in the final and Muto's second time in there. Uh, and I'm going to talk about, like, if you watch this match, you'll see that Muto is wearing a bandage on his forehead, and this is apparently from <laughs> Ric Flair busting him open. Uh, I would assume Hardway, maybe from punches that he's well known for. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting with this one, though, because obviously Muto had not been in the final since 91, and didn't they have some kind of storyline going on with these two guys? Hadn't um, Hashimoto already beat Muto earlier on in, in the year? Oh, probably. I, I, it's, it's hard to keep track of like going back in history <laughs> and just checking out. But I mean, these guys like with Chono, Hashimoto, and Mudo, there's always this kind of like, you know, like rivalry that they've always had against each other. Especially when they kind of replace Choshu and Fujinami as uh, the main event guys, the big draws for New Japan. So at this point, like Chono's firmly a heel. I believe like he's he's already started like his own group, and then I think at this point they're well into like the NWO Japan stuff. Uh, in mm. that, oh, is that or is that no? That's maybe a year later. But anyway, Chono's not really <laughs> part of this match. Um, but you know, like they're they're doing their introductions and they they do their taunts, right? Like you know, they introduce Hashimoto. He whips off his headband and he puts his hand up in the air. Mudo does like his double hand like pose with his like uh, before he takes off his t-shirt. And I don't know if you played like N64 like wrestling games back in the day, but it just reminded me, oh my God, those are the exact same taunts that they do in Virtual Pro Wrestling 2, which is the greatest wrestling video game of all time, Martin. I don't know if you're familiar with that particular game. I, I have heard about it, and many people have told me it's the greatest uh, game of all time, but sadly, I, I didn't play it. I was more of a uh, WCW, NWO, World Tour sort of guy. Well, it's the same engine, but this is a Japanese-only game. So you have pretty much every Japanese wrestler like uh, that that's not licensed under like the All Japan roster because the, the, the makers of the game license, like legally licensed All Japan guys. But what they they did a workaround by like just changing all the names and the looks of all the other wrestlers. But you could go in the edit mode and make them look like their true selves. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a nice workaround. I don't know if you could get away with that uh, these days. Um, so we start the match off, and there's lots of jockeying for position to start off. Uh, things pick up in around the uh, four minute mark with Hashimoto shoulder tackling Muto and going for a high kick. Muto ducks under that and hits Hashimoto with a rolling savat kick, which is you know one of his signature moves. And he, I can't think of anyone who does that move as well as he does. Uh, I recently watched the the Okada uh, Sonata match, and Sonata incorporates this in his in his repertoire because he is 
he was trained by Kishimoto, but you know, he just doesn't do it as well as Kishimoto. So, no. Uh, Hashimoto starts targeting Mudo's right, uh, right leg with kicks. Uh, Mudo catches uh, Hashimoto's own right leg and hits a dragon screw leg whip and then grabs his left leg in a leg lock, which oh, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Uh, <laughs> you, you have both guys trying to neutralize important aspects of each other's arsenal. Um, you know, with Mudo, he, you know, Hashimoto's trying to take away the moonsault, which, you know, of course, requires Mudo to have healthy legs, and uh, Mudo's trying to take away Hashimoto's kicks. It's interesting with this one because it it starts off quite slow. I mean, you pointed out some some things there, but obviously they start off with the crowd being so so hot for this, and it, it's it like there's a load of legwork, and you can feel the crowd sort of like dying down a bit, dying down a bit, and it's not still sort of like the midway march where it really sort of picks up again. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, it goes towards like this kind of like you know psychology in the match, like Mudo's. Strategy, obviously, is to keep going after Hashimoto's legs. And uh, Hashimoto comes back and hits a big arm breaker, like where he grab, twists the guy's arm and hits it over his shoulder. A uh, move that you see, like, Yuji Nagata use occasionally. And mm. he starts kicking on uh, Mudo's left arm. Uh, Mudo hits a power drive elbow, another one of his signature moves, and goes back to Hashimoto's left leg. So he, he's given up on the right leg. Thank God for that. Uh, <laughs> Hashimoto escapes with an arm bar on Mudo's left arm. Uh, I, at this point, I'm really paying attention to see if like they're being consistent with the limb work because I'm saying, is he targeting the left arm or the right arm? Is he going back and forth? I, but they're being pretty consistent here. Uh, mm. uh, we see things pick up with uh, Mudo hitting strikes before sending Hashimoto to the corner and following him with his backflip springboard elbow and uh, face crusher, another signature move. So we're getting like Mudo's greatest hits during, like I would argue, this is his peak period, 1995, Martin. Oh no, for me it's um, it's ninety one here. I, as much as I enjoy this uh, this this period of Muto, obviously being a big fan of his, but uh, for me it's his earlier work from uh, ninety one, ninety two that um, I really enjoyed from Muto. Uh, I think this is like that's his uh, space lone wolf period where he's wearing like the trunks, the the, the kind of reddish pink trunks, the white boots, and that's his like nickname was the space lone wolf. I think by ninety five he's starting to use the natural born master uh nickname mm-hmm. it, it's interesting mudo goes through all these different nicknames throughout his entire career not not excluding like you know the great mudo of course um hashimoto regains control with big chops to mudo's shoulder he gets mudo with a belly-to-belly suplex and a, a running drop kick very impressive for a man of hashimoto's size oh most definitely because obviously you know you've seen hashimoto doing uh, these sort of like high fly moves also like say very impressive yeah and and after this running dropkick, this is where, like, Hashimoto starts thinking, I'm not fucking around anymore. And he tries to cave in Mudo's chest with his kicks. Uh, and Kraut, at this point, is so fired up by yeah. these, these exchanges from Hashimoto. Uh, and then he goes for a ro- rolling spin kick, and he gets a two-count on Mudo. Uh, he goes for he follows up with a DDT two-count. And the crowd, at this point, is just going cr- crazy. Uh, are you, are you, and I, I, at this point, I'm caught up with the crowd. I'm like, going crazy too how about you martin yes most definitely and those kicks from hashimoto they are like wince inducing i mean you, you usually sort of like see those from you like sushibata and people like that but yeah the, the kicks to uh muto's face here are just absolutely wince inducing yeah and, and like you say i was caught with the crowd here like like i know it earlier it was a slow start 
for the beginning, but then by this point, I was like uh, diving around on my settee. Yeah, and so we we then go into a uh, fisherman suplex is turned into an armbar by uh, Mudo. Uh, Mudo hits a backdrop uh, suplex. He goes to the top rope with a missile drop kick. Goes for a top rope Frankensteiner. He hits a top rope Frankensteiner on Hashimoto. <laughs> I can't believe he got him over for this. Uh, and then he gets a two count with that move. Uh, at this point, they're like they're just like they're in the kind of like the crescendo of the match, uh, as I like to call it. Uh, Mudo goes for another moonsault, but uh, uh, Hashimoto smartly rolls out of the very uh, out of the way and then sweeps Mudo's leg with a with a beautiful sw- spin kick. One of like Hashimoto's. Uh, most beautiful, like graceful looking moves, which you, you don't necessarily, you know, associate with Shinya Hashimoto as being graceful because if you're not familiar with him, if you're listening to this, you don't know what ha- Shinya Hashimoto looks like. I, I don't know. Martin, how would you describe Shinya Hashimoto? Oh God. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. He looks like a really, really old style wrestler, like some guy who got into a load of barroom brawls back in the day. And some guy was like, hey, you should come along and be a wrestler. And he was like, OK. And then for some reason, they decided that his gimmick was going to be sort of wearing this sort of like uh, real mixed martial arts type get up but yeah it's really hard to describe him because he, looking at him he doesn't look like a main event wrestler does he he just looks like sort of like a barroom brawler to me but then puts these fantastic matches on well you know what i've heard often used as a reference to hashimoto's look is he looks like fat elvis <laughs> see I didn't, I didn't want to go down that route but uh, okay fair enough we can go down that route Martin. it's no problem don't worry about it <laughs> But yeah, there's because of like also the sideburns. He's got the the the, the flared you know t- you know the flared kind of bell bottom pants uh, and like you know he's kind of like martial arts fat elf gimmick. But you know like he he's got this aura. Like Hashimoto always had this aura about him, and and it's very present in this particular match. Uh, we continue with a strike exchange, uh, which Hashimoto wins, uh, and then uh, he did he gives a head kick to Mudo, and he gets a two count for that. Um, uh, what what am I going here? Okay, uh, from this point, Mudo comes back. He gives him a running DDT two count. Uh, Mudo is now bleeding from his forehead. Uh, oh, sorry, the running DDT is from Hashimoto, and Mudo kicks out at two, and he's now bleeding from the earlier wound he received from uh, from Flair. But now that you know we had the bandage, the bandage is gone, and now he's a bloody mess at this point, Martin. This is the trigger point for Muto here. As soon as that blood comes, that's when he really fires up. Cause, and this is uh, when the crowd even goes on to another level. And this is when he, he starts going back for the moonsaults, uh, which are eventually going to get him the victory here. Yeah, at, uh, from, from this blood you know, this blood point, we see Hashimoto going for his signature brain buster. But Muto ca- smartly counters it with a knee to the face. Uh, we see a shot of the people in the audience cheering Mudo on, and and they're firmly now behind. I think Mudo at this point. There's a lot but of. But it's like Japanese businessmen and stuff, isn't it? These, it is, everyone's going crazy, and it shows you in the crowd sort of like these sort of like guys in suits and shirts and ties and things like that. And, it, and it's funny you read all these books where uh, Americans are talking about how Japanese fans just sit on their hands and they're very respectful, and then you watch this match and you're like, that couldn't be anything further from the truth. Well, you know, I'm I'm hoping, you know, in January you'll see for yourself in person <laughs> what Japanese crowds are like when like we hit like kind of the apex 
of a really hot match. Um, but yeah, one thing that really, you know, is astounding to me, like you say, you see all these kind of like we call salarymen, office workers wearing their shirts and ties. Obviously, they may be taking time off work or come straight from work is that Sumo Hall is an incredibly hot building in, in August. You know, Martin, I've, I've almost died from dehydration. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I make no, that's not an exaggeration. I felt like I was going to die on like at least three separate occasions being in that building in, in August. It's one thing like where I'm not that keen to go back to Sumo Hall, even for the G1. Like, so <laughs> last year, I was so happy when I heard that they were going to run Budokan Hall. One reason is because like I've never been there. It's on my bucket list and I got to cross it off. But two is because I, I heard that the air conditioner in there was way better than Sumo Hall. So <laughs> good. That's good for you then, I guess. Yeah, I have heard it. I have heard it's insanely hot, not just in venues, but just in Tokyo in general over the summer periods. Yeah, I don't necessarily recommend coming here in the summer. Like I'm kind of used to it, you know, by now, but still like, you know, when June hits, June is what the, we call the, the rainy season where it just rains a lot. And then this is when the humidity kind of com- comes into the country and just stays for the next three months. And it's unrelenting, Martin. Like, there's no break periods from, from the humidity. Like, in Canada and Toronto, like, we'll have humid periods, but then the rain will come. It'll be cool again. It'll be comfortable. It'll be dry. And then the humidity comes, and we just start the cycle again. But in Japan, humidity, okay, September, it's gone. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't recommend coming here. Spring? Fall, even winter, are all fine times to come to Japan to watch wrestling. Uh, you can but, tell by watching this match, though, that you know every time it goes to the crowd, you know, there's a, everyone's looking very sweaty in there. Yeah, well, we also have like um, the, the portable fans, like the, the paper fans that we like to use, <laughs> like walking the streets. You'll see this a lot if you come here in the summer. People carrying fans, just like paper fans, just like fanning themselves on the streets in restaurants. Even with air conditioners, people will still fan themselves just because it's kind of like a habit people have in the summer. Yeah. Um, getting back to the match, we see Mudo hits another Frankensteiner, this time for another two count. Uh, moonsault, two, second moonsault. And finally, we get the win. Uh, Keiji Mudo pins Shin Hashimoto uh, and wins G1 in 24 minutes and eight seconds. Uh, and that, the crowd is going crazy. Uh, we're, we're, we're presented with... Uh, post-match ceremony where Ramudo is given a certificate, he's given a trophy, he's given another trophy, and a, a sweet robe. They give him a nice, a very cool robe for being the winner of the G1, and a big-ass check for 5 million yen, which is about $50,000, give or take. Wow. Do a rough, rough translation. See, but, you know... Gimmick you know, check, I'm assuming. It's a, it, it's a gimmick. <laughs> it, it's a work. That check is not real. So uh, people think, wow, you get you get a lot of money for winning the G1. It, it's all work, folks. Don't yeah. get too excited about that. Uh, uh, Hashimoto gets his own consolation trophy. He goes over to over to Mudo and raises his hand after to uh, you know celebrate his victory. Uh, Mudo thanks the crowd, and then we uh, sl- uh, so what I have just read my notes here. Slow build to the match. Oh yeah, so the match itself was like you said before, Martin. There's like a slow build to it. But when they start trading strikes, that's when, you know, they, they're getting into it more and the audience is getting into it as well. Uh, what did you think, overall thoughts about this match between Shin Hashimoto and Keiji Mudo? Yeah, like I said, the last 10 minutes, uh, 
the best of wrestling for me. I thought these two sort of like legendary wrestlers going at it and just the crowd going insane, incredible atmosphere and just the best. But yeah, like I noted earlier, I felt, um, even though, you know, I don't mind limb work now and again, I felt like um, it sort of dragged on a bit too much in, in the opening part of the match. And uh, you felt the uh, atmosphere sort of like leaving the building as uh, as they were just uh, trading uh, mat work and limb work on the floor. But yeah, once, um, once you know, Hashimoto starts uh, kicking Muta, then that's when it really kicks up another gear. And especially when... Uh, Muta's um, plaster on his forehead when that get, when he gets busted open again, he really fires up. That's when he hits another level, and yeah, definitely, definitely um, an exciting match, and um, one I'd definitely recommend people check out if you've not seen it. And also, what's interesting here is that um, someone like Muta is such a legendary figure in Japan, but his knees must be held together with nothing. I mean, you see these Frankensteiners, you know, with two of them in the match and then the moonsault, and he's crashing down on those knees every time. And, you know, he was obviously known for the, for doing these moves. But, yeah, his knees nowadays, they must be held together with virtually nothing. Do you know the, the famous story of when he had his last WCW run? Uh, I think this story was told to me by... Jeff Merrick, you know, the old host of the of Live Audio Wrestling. Mm-hmm. And he I think this story was told to him by by Lance Storm, who he was friends with. Uh, and like so they do the WCW like checkups, right? Medical checkups. Mm-hmm. And like the doctor will ask, you know, the wrestler, uh, how are you feeling? And uh, all the wrestlers just kayfabe him. Right. And just say, oh, yeah, I'm fine. No, no, nothing's wrong with me. I'm OK. You know, even though they're probably all like hurting from various you know injuries and like, you know, wear and tear on their limbs. But apparently, no one told Mudo this. So when when the when he goes up and the doctor asks him, "Oh, uh, how are you doing?" He goes, oh, "I'm terrible. Like my neck hurts, <laughs> my knees are shot. Like I I, I need." To, he told I think he said something to the effect like, "I need to get them drained <laughs> after the show." <laughs> <laughs> so, so like and like like Mudo and I think the doctor was like, "Uh, what?" Because <laughs> he's just used to wrestlers telling him, "Yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine. Don't worry about me." But Mudo's like, yeah, my knees are shot, my neck hurts, my back hurts, like everything hurts. And he was just, and the doctor was apparently just like, wow, okay, uh, I, I guess I can still clear you for wrestling tonight, you know, kind of thing. So that was a funny story I heard about uh, Keiji Mudo not kayfabing the uh, Western doctors when he was working for WCW. Uh, oh, God, impor- that, and of all the things you want to talk about WCW and all the mistakes and stuff they made, when they were bringing Muto in in 2000 and 2001 or that, around that time period and just absolutely pointless matches and wasting him on this and it was just disgraceful what they how they used him, especially around that time period. I think he was like, associated with like Vampiro and like the Misfits. Yeah, and he was having matches against Ernest Miller and people like that in the second match of the card, and I was like, this guy is a legend. He deserves so much more than this. Yeah, well, like, I mean, WCW being clueless is, you know, it's like saying, well, you know, water is wet, right? Yeah, (laughs) indeed. So I have to ask you, like, in in your experience going to live shows, have you ever felt like something akin to a crowd reacting like they would at 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 a G1 Climax final like this? No, I kind of, it's weird for me. I've never, um, coming from a Westerner's point of view, I've never experienced the Steve Austin pop in the Attitude Era. I saw Hogan in 94, so not quite a pop there. I think, God, I think 
the biggest, loudest reaction I've been part of in, in terms of wrestling was uh, when I went to WrestleMania the other year and the Hardy Boys came out as a surprise. I think that's, yeah, that's when even that was nothing compared to what these uh, shows look like on tape. Even though OTT uh, in Ireland comes close to it, especially the uh, Devlin v. Walter match I watched earlier this year, but uh, obviously there's not as many people there, so, you know, only so many people can make so much noise. But, yeah, still, I've not experienced anything live as what looks like uh, the Stu on Climax that we watched oh by the way i just have to make a side note here you you said the uh walter v devlin match like you that's kind of like a signature thing if you like you, you don't say versus you say v like when you talk about people fighting each other i i have since since list started listening to the british wrestling experience i have adopted saying that myself oh, really <laughs> <laughs> especially like written i don't say i don't write vs period anymore i just write v and it's all because of, of you, Martin. So thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> well, I think I guess it's from uh, being a kid and seeing boxing posters where it literally just said so-and-so V so-and-so. And I guess I adopted it from there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I had no idea I did that until now. But <laughs> No, I, I, I love it so much that I've adopted it. I, I hope you don't mind the gimmick infringement. By the way, no, no, just send me a just send me a couple of dollars every month and we'll be fine. Uh, I'll uh, no, well, how about I, I buy you like uh, uh, some alcohol when you come to visit Japan? <laughs> that sounds even better. Okay, I uh, want to make a one uh, uh, final note about this match before we get into the trivia part of the show. Uh, Mudo is the first person to win the G1 climax while also being the IWGP champion, and uh, with that in mind, there is no title shot given to the winner because he's already. The champion. Um, so at this point, Martin, like I like to steal something from uh, John and Way's uh, review. Uh, you know, rewind to raw, raw shows. No, like so the review away shows that they do, mm-hmm. and that's do some trivia about the time period. And I have catered this trivia specifically to the UK just for you, Martin. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, first one is about music, uh, Martin. What is the number one song in the UK? In August of 1995. Wow. Um, is it something by Blur or Oasis? It, it, it's nothing in the Britpop uh, realm of music. Uh, Kylie Minogue, maybe? Someone like that? Some kind of a pop star? It's it's a boy band? A British boy band? Take That? Yes. Which song by Take That? Uh, Back For Good is the only one I know. Uh, Never Forget by Take That is the number one song. In there the you go. Well, time. apparently I forgot it. So. <laughs> there you go. You did forget it. Okay. Uh, number one album. And it's, uh, I'll, I'll give you a clue. It's not by any UK artist. It's by an American, a very, very famous American solo artist. Bruce Springsteen? It is. Which which album? Oh, 95 Springsteen. Uh my mind has gone completely blank. He'd obviously broken up the E Street Band at this point, so it must be... Uh, now my mind's gone blank. Uh, well, uh, it's it's not any of his studio albums. So it's uh, his greatest hits album. Uh, is, uh, oh, well, there we go. I should have just guessed <laughs> with the most obvious one. <laughs> yeah. uh, and finally, uh, for pop culture, uh, what's the number one box office movie in the UK at this time, in 1995? Oh, summer of '95. Uh, Men in Black. Not Men in Black. It's a sci-fi movie. It's not Men oh, in Black. Sci-fi. It's a year. We're a year removed from Independence Day, so not that. Uh, oh, it that stars, night. It, it stars Kevin Costner. 
95. Waterworld. It's Waterworld. That's correct. I'm surprised that movie was as popular as it was. Well, that was that. I mean, the, even more trivia for you there. I mean, that cost so much money. They thought it was going to sink the studio, didn't it? Literally. And uh, yeah, and I think it did make quite a decent amount of money. I remember it coming out and reading all in Empire Magazine about how, you know, this was going to be the biggest flop of all time and it was going to destroy whatever studio it had made. And they'd made it rather um but yeah i think it did uh pretty decent i mean i went to the cinema and watched it and enjoyed it at the time i've not watched it since so i don't know how well it holds up uh yeah i, I watched it on dvd i didn't go to the cinema but i thought ah, oh, this is okay i'm surprised it made as much money as it did but i think the the thing about Waterworld was that everyone thought it was going to be a hit including the studio because it was like kevin costner teaming up uh re-teaming with i think director kevin reynolds who, who yeah made, that was uh, all right they made the uh, the Robin Hood movie, which was a mm-hmm. huge success. Okay, so let's go to wrestling trivia of uh, August 1995. Who are the All Japan Pro Wrestling World Tag Team Champions at this time? I have absolutely no idea. I wasn't watching All Japan in 95. Just okay. New Japan. I was strictly one promotion guy. <laughs> okay, so it is the Holy Demon Army, which is the team of Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawe. Uh, okay, so here's a New Japan question. Who is the IWGP junior champion at this time? Oh, 95. Uh, uh, Otani? Close. It's, it's, one of, it's one of Otani's peers. His peers? Oh, I've gone completely blank. No, you're going to have to put me out of my misery on that one. Okay, it's uh, Koji Kanemoto. Is, oh, of course know, it is. Of course it is. You know, one of the most influential, uh, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> these days. How many people use the Koji Clutch, you know, as their finisher these days? You know, Christopher Daniels uses it. Um, he must else. be one of the most underrated guys because he never gets brought up in these conversations about when you're talking about the, the juniors of the 90s and the most influential ones. Obviously, Liger is the one everyone brings up. But, yeah, you know, he never gets brought up in these conversations, really. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because... I, I feel that in ni- in the 1990s, like the New Japan Juniors overall as a division was a lot deeper and stronger than the heavyweight division. You know, you have, of course, like the Three Musketeers, you have Sasaki, you have, I think Hase is still around, you, you have, you know, Shiro Koshinaka, you have Tenru who's going to come in eventually. Um, but for me, like you have Liger, El Samurai, Shinjiro Otani, Koji Kanemono, Tatsuhiro Takaiwa, you have Eddie Guerrero as Black Tiger. You have like Chris Jericho making appearances at this point in in New Japan. You have Chris Benoit's Wild Pegasus. It, it was just an amazing division. And then they'd have you know guest appearances from guys from Michinoku Pro like Great Sasuke, Taka Michinoku, uh, Kaintai DX, and all these people. And then it was it's just a really great time. And oh, Dean Malenko, you had WCW guys making appearances in in the in the junior division at this point because of the relationship with. WCW. I always yeah that whole period though the early nineties. I mean from sort of like nineteen ninety on to sort of like ninety six. I mean the junior division in in Japan as a whole was some one of the most influential ones of uh, of all time. Surely. Yeah, I mean for me, like I I love watching the juniors in New Japan, and then I loved watching the heavyweights in All Japan because. The, the juniors division in, in All Japan didn't really exist. Giant Baba was not really a big proponent of junior heavyweight wrestling. But, like, the thing with, like, the junior division is that, you know, you had, like, you know, Sayama and Dynamite Kid kind of, like, lay the groundwork of 
what that division was going to be like. And then Liger, uh, I think, became the booker just of the juniors. And of course, like, you know, he's got a, an amazing mind for wrestling, not just as a wrestler, but as like a booker as well. And he was booking that stuff. He's one of the most, you know, unselfish bookers that you'll ever find in the history of professional wrestling. And, you know, that's something, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too deep into because like I have this idea for something where we talk about junior heavyweight wrestling from Japan in a future series that, you know, I hopefully you'll be on one of those shows as well. But I'm not going to talk about it more than that right now. What was it? Was 95? I don't need to put you on the spot here. Was this when sort of like Inoki had started doing his uh, never-ending retirement tour? It was around 94, 95? Uh, probably. It's, but that's not the, the problem with Inoki. Like, you know, Inoki was doing his retirement tours, um, and so was Choshu. You know, mm. like, he, Choshu just had another one, like, a couple of months ago at Cork and Hall, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, like, you know, twenty almost 25 years later. After his big one at the Tokyo Dome, um, oh let let me get back to two more two more uh, trivia questions. Who is the WWF champion in 1995? Uh, was this was Diesel's run, wasn't it? Surely, not Diesel. But, no. Oh well, it was. Oh, Bret Hart or Bob Backlund? It's Bret Hart. Right. I think Bob Backlund won it from him, and then just lost it to Diesel the night after at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, I think in like 10 seconds or whatever. And then uh, I, I always remember Kevin Nash shoot interview where he says that, you know, Bob literally crawled to the back, even though there were no cameras on him, you know, just to put over what a monster he was. Yeah, good old good old Bob Backlund. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was a great run from him <laughs> that year. Though I, I got to say, watching Bob Backlund, like, you know, in that period was really strange for me because, like, I'd only been familiar with him reading the the Bill Apter mags, you know, like Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Inside Wrestling, and, and so forth, so on. So I didn't really know what, what kind of a wrestler he was. And then I was just like watching him like, whoa, he's nothing like what I imagined he would be. No. <laughs> and, but I, I can appreciate like his style more more now. I, I think a wrestler of Bob Backlund's style would actually do fairly well in today's climate of wrestling. Yeah, definitely. I mean, no one's all about it. I mean, that was, the 95 was all about having the flashy gimmicks and stuff, weren't it? And I suppose uh, younger fan, younger fans that we were back then, WH watching it, I suppose he, he kind of looked a bit boring. But yeah, nowadays, it'd certainly fit in, into wrestling in 2019. Maybe he's like the prototype for like, you know, Timothy Thatcher or something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That He'd, he'd certainly look good in that uh, ring camp faction, that's for sure. Yes. Uh, and finally, last question, Martin. Uh, who is the WCW World Champion in August of 1995? Oh, uh, was it? Uh, it's either Hulk Hogan or somebody who was uh, facing Hulk Hogan. It, it was indeed Hulk Hogan. So yeah. at the time, uh, during his massive, you know, run with the WCW title, and you know, having a hand in all the booking, I'm sure. You know, oh, I don't want to lose to these guys. No, let's keep yeah. this belt. I think this is when he. I think this is when he drives like Big Van Vader off off to like you know WWF at this point. This is the uh, awful period, isn't it? Sort of like when Hogan comes in in '94, you have this quote-unquote dream matches with Flair, and then after that, it's all the Dungeon of Doom awfulness. I do remember a Starcade though that had Liger and a bunch of other. Uh, I think that might have been Starcade '95 or '96 that had a uh, Liger and a bunch of the uh, junior heavyweights over from New Japan. That was actually a pretty decent show, probably headlined by an awful Hogan match. But uh, I remember the undercard uh, was pretty interesting on that one. I think Shinjiro Otani had a match with Eddie Guerrero. On that show, which mm. is uh, you know two of the best workers, in, in, you know 
in the world at that point. Um, so yeah, so yeah, we're we're at the end of the show, and uh, thank you so much for appearing on Cruel Summer, Martin. I really, really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the invite. Um, I mean, you've run down to me all the other guests that you've had on, so I, I feel like I'm in a, a really good company. Oh, definitely. Like you were like some, you were like one of the people. Like I thought, gotta have Martin on, gotta have John on. You know, gotta have this person, this person, this person on. So uh, at this point, like, please tell us where people can find more Martin Bushby. Uh, well, more Martin Bushby um, by by monthly on uh, Post Wrestling. We have uh, our own um, our own separate feed from uh, the rest of the other shows. Easily found uh, just by searching the British Wrestling Experience on uh, any podcast provider and, and also on Spotify now. Uh, yeah, so if you want to hear myself, Ben Owen, uh, Jamesy talk about all the best and, and worst of European wrestling. I, I've been listening. Several The last couple of episodes have been fantastic. I'm so glad you talked about Joel Rudman on on the most recent episode that I listened to. <laughs> One of my favorites from uh, you know from the recent Champions Carnival from All Japan this this past uh, you know uh, past March and April. So I thank you for the the, the enlightening discussion about Joel Rudman. Uh, and have actually, you seen, when, have you seen anything of Joel Rudman before his uh, his current All Japan uh, tour? No, because like you know, I I met, I I DM'd you on on Twitter, and I was like, "What? Who's this Joel Redmond guy? I, don't, I, I have no idea who this guy is." And you were like, "Oh, he's boring. <laughs> he, he works at camps. He was Oliver Gray with you know in NXT. He was the first NXT Tag Team Champions with Pac." And I'm just like, "Oh, okay. I don't know who he is." But you know, like, so I had no expectations of him. Actually, I had very low expectations because I also messaged Benno. I was like, "Who's this guy?" He goes, "Oh, yeah, like he's boring." Uh, and JP hates him <laughs> with a passion, and Joe Lemon is not a big fan of him either. These are the guys. Dead Eyes Redman, that's what. Dead Eyes Redman, yeah, like, like yeah, it's like so. All the guys from the the, the Grapple Spotlight show were burying him apparently. But when I saw him, I was like, holy shit, this guy's amazing! Like because like you made a good point. He's nothing like all the other wrestlers on the New Japan roster. He he stands out because he's doing a very unique style. And his character is just like so, like nice. Like it's it's a nice cry from like you know Joe Doring, Dylan James, who are you know they're not heels or anything like that, but they don't engage with the crowd so much. He's yeah. going out there shaking the hands of everyone in the crowd, and it's a far cry from one of the worst wrestlers on the roster, Gianni Valletta, who is just absolutely horrible, who just does like this you know like dime store Bruiser Brody gimmick, which I absolutely despise. And like I'm so glad like Joel Redman came and I'm I'm a big, big fan. I'm hoping he's gonna, you know, do more tours of the of, of all Japan. And I, I I gotta say, if he if he's listening to this, Joel Redman, bring some merchandise, dude. Like you can make a killing. People will buy your shit. I guarantee it. Okay, so uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, thank you again, Martin, for joining us. Uh, you can listen again, you can listen to Martin at the British Wrestling Experience here on postwrestling.com. And that's it for me, and I'll see everyone on the next episode. Bye.